Welcome to Behavioral Groups, the podcast that uses a behavioral science lens to explore the wonders of the human condition by examining the decisions we make and the behaviors that come from them. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. In conversations with some of the brightest minds on the planet, we explore the science behind our feelings, our decisions, and most importantly, our behaviors. We are on a mission to expand the community of people applying behavioral science to work and personal life. And we hope that you find some meaningful insights from our episode today. And we think there might be a 95% chance that you're going to find some amazing ideas in this episode and a 100% chance that you're going to be entertained. And that is mostly because of our very two very bright practitioners who have written a book about rethinking the way we humans get around, literally. I mean, the way that we get around from one place to the next. Ah, yes. Rory Sutherland and Pete Dyson have known each other for many years from their time working together at Ogilvy. Now, together, they authored Transport for Humans, a book about the ways that transportation impacts our lives and our planet. Our discussion with Rory and Pete was, uh, as Kurt might say, full of insights and laughter. (laughs) You're sure to get some very clever ideas from this conversation. So a couple of years ago, Pete became the chief behavioral scientist at the Department for Transportation transport in the United Kingdom. So transport, as he would say, is really important to him. And you should know before we get started that Pete has never owned an automobile in his entire life. And and he bicycled an uninterrupted 468 kilometers. For those Americans who can't do the kilometer to miles math, that's 290 (laughs) miles from an area called Land's End in England to Hyde Park which lasted 11 hours and 49 minutes. He's really an amazing person. And by the way, he would also say that it's not cars and trains are bad. It's just that he really likes bikes. (laughs) Thank goodness. Rory, for those of you who don't know, is the vice chairman at Ogilvy UK and a well-loved TED global speaker and past guest on behavioral groups as well. Now, Rory is not the enthusiastic bicyclist (laughs) that Pete is. No, but... Rory is dedicated to making sure that future generations of Sutherlands will inhabit a planet that will sustain their lives. And it's been almost 10 years since he and I first met over a Pisco Sour and a G&T in a bar in London. And it's always fun to connect with him. It is always fun to connect with Rory. And uh, lots of laughs come from most of those connections. So, all right. Uh, And even more important than what Tim and Rory had to drink, you're going to hear some important behavioral science-influenced ideas about transportation in this episode. So sit back with whatever pour that you want and listen to our conversation with Rory and Pete. Rory Sutherland and Pete Dyson, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you for having us. Yeah, huge pleasure to be on. Thank you very much for inviting us. We always start with a speed round, which never becomes a speed round, but we're going to start anyway, and we're going to do this. So, Pete, you get the first round here. Which is better on a train, coffee or tea? Tea. Tea. You are the the, the perfect British uh, citizen here, right? I like right. to drink it slowly and more gaze out the window than just be really charged up, you know? Very good, very good. Yeah, I, I would, I, I'd say it would be tea. It will be tea when someone finally solves the what to do with the tea bag problem. 
<laughs> so there are, there are occasions where, as a lazy Brit, I really want to drink tea, but I can't be bothered to deal with the consequences and the detritus, so I end up ordering a coffee. <laughs> All right, Rory, then this, this question is for you. Which is better on an airplane, reading a book or watching a movie? Uh, ooh, uh, reading, actually. Um, and oh. the reason is, the reason is, I don't have that much trouble finding time to watch movies at home and in my spare time. But the extraordinary period with zero interruptions on a plane is absolutely perfect for reading. Mm. And uh, the other thing is, uh, if you fall asleep while reading a book, it's a lot less hassle to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> There is that one good positive there. So there you yeah, go. Yeah. All right. Uh, by the way, your judgment gets clouded. Your film judgment goes to heck when you're on a plane because the low level of oxygenation, I've actually cried and become emotionally involved at pretty rubbish movies when flying. <laughs> and you do actually become more tearful and, and emotional as a result of low levels of oxygenation. So yeah. your 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 level of, I think your level of film criticism completely plummets at 15,000 feet. So in other words, I should not write a review on any no. movie I've watched on, on the, on the airplane. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Very, very some, some studies have backed it up that, um, yeah, you're more likely to cry, cry watching the same movie on a plane for some physiological reasons and maybe some tension in, in the way you're leaving and where you're going to sort of sociocultural reasons. It's a fascinating area. I've done a lot more movie watching on planes than book reading, but I would love to read a book that sort of, uh, I'd love to get book recommendations that are about when someone's flying, something that works really well when you're on a plane. So, for instance, for films, I uh, watched uh, Inception, which to some extent is based on a, some of the scenes are about the travel on a plane. And it feels uh -huh. very strange to be in the air while you're watching it. You know, too much sommelier pairing the transport mode with the media mode. Mm. I would occasionally, in the early days when you downloaded films and programs to your laptop or tablet, I would actually watch air crash investigations on flights. And I'm, oh. not, I'm not remotely frightened of flying, or at least I wasn't then. I'm a little more nervous now. And then it was only after about the third trip that I realized that other people looking over my shoulder. <laughs> the who might the, the be wandering eye, right? Yeah, that wandering yeah, eye. Exactly, yeah. the wandering eye. Somebody goes, what's he watching? And they immediately see a 737 pitching into the sea. <laughs> Oh, and so God. I stopped that for the benefit of my fellow passenger. You know, we Rory, thank you. you're, you're a giving yeah. person. You're a giving I, I was. person. I think that was kind. Yeah. He's a giver. Yeah. Yeah. Pete, Pete, third question for you. If you wanted to travel 290 miles, or in other words, that is 468 kilometers from Land's End in Cromwell to Hyde Park in London, what, what mode of transportation would you use? Well, I've tried the bicycle, so uh, next time I take the train. And uh, <laughs> uh, for listeners, yes, earlier this year I uh, cycled all that distance, uh, but crucially in one go, uh, yes. leaving at about nine a.m. in the morning in in the southwest of England and cycling to the capital um, and doing it faster than anyone's ever done it before, which is uh, an intimidating thing. It's in under twelve hours. Yeah, that's that is a pretty intimidating thing, and and so, sorry, and I'm just, sorry, you, I, you did you did Lands End in Cornwall to 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 London in twelve hours on a bike. <laughs> <laughs> you can barely do that in a car. <laughs> Rory, I think he he was he was going to race you in your new electric vehicle yeah. and see which one you know finished first. He'd so. overtake me at a charging point somewhere in <laughs> near Bodmin. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, uh, Rory, when it comes to uh, discretionary travel, would you travel on a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all? Rather tragically, I like the fixed itinerary, and I think Pete might answer the same way, because we're in that tiny minority of people who absolutely love planning journeys. Mm. And so half the pleasure we derive is actually the forward planning and even gaming the system. Mm. So Pete and I are both in that tiny minority of people who will literally sit there for an hour going, uh, you know, what if we went from Waterloo and travelled via Salisbury? But we, we we also are reasonable enough to acknowledge we're in a, we're in a very weird minority for doing that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think we're in a minority, and where where we notice our own position is that um, we wish it didn't have to be that way. So we we feel like we get a great transport experience because we put the effort in to plan it beforehand. Yeah, yeah. But we just wish that other people did didn't have to go through that that, that trial and error uh, to get yeah. to get it. Well, and let's 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 dig into that because that's what your book is about. So, can you tell us a little bit, just from the, that high picture perspective of your book and why you guys decided to write this? I think travel and transportation appeals to us very strongly. It always has with me as a kind of test case for behavioral science because mm. it embraces two things really: complexity theory. Well, three things, I suppose. There's complexity theory, there's network theory, and there's behavioral science which all come together at a level of complexity which is high enough to be interesting but low enough to be comprehensible. Okay. And so all right. it's, it, it, my, my connection with the field actually started really with a joke, which was at a TED talk in about 2009. I, I made the point that actually if you're looking at it from a passenger point of view, not from an engineer's point of view, um, putting Wi-Fi on a train or, as I jokingly said, having – male and female supermodels handing out free chatted Petrus on a train might matter a lot more to the passenger and to their preference for taking the train than making the journey shorter. And yet engineering metrics, which are usually about time or punctuality or speed or capacity, I think have become increasingly detached from psychological metrics, which is what engineers care about and what passengers care about are not necessarily the same thing. And I'd also argue they probably correlate. This is where I think we've got to be careful. They correlate at the beginning. Okay, no one's suggesting that people wouldn't be angry if flights were routinely three hours late Mm. or if trains arrived, you know, two hours late. We have a situation in the UK where a rail company is penalised if their train arrives in a London terminus more than three minutes after the timetabled arrival time. Now, my argument is, hold on a second, guys, right? Okay. No one, seriously, travelling into London fails to allow 10 or 15 minutes buffer time or leeway. You know, we're not Swiss. You know, we don't we do not do everything to, you know, to the second. And the idea that passengers are significantly disquieted by a five-minute delay is simply nonsensical, okay? Mm. Now, I get it. There are logistical reasons why you want trains to run on time, which is you can have bad knock-on effects. But my point was that what we're optimizing for and when we develop budgets for transport infrastructure spending, the metrics we use to justify the expense are nothing to do with either human, what humans care about or determining how they behave. And since the purpose of presumably of infrastructure investment is to change behavior, 
okay, not factoring in these psychological factors and treating it as, in Pete's immortal phrase, treating us as though we were homo transporticus, which is basically homo economicus on a train or a plane or a bicycle, okay, which is only preoccupied with speed of, you know, speed of journey and journey time. It has, you know, and those factors will cause a significant misalignment of investment. Incidentally, if people are homo transporticus, by the way, uh, which you, you don't want people to be homo transporticus, because if everybody uses the same criteria to decide on their journey, mm. the network will be badly used. Because you would have, in that case, uh, you know, let's say there was a train that was crowded, you know, and expensive, and it took two hours and 20 minutes. And there was a slightly slower train that was much cheaper, less crowded, more scenic a journey, etc., you know, with onboard catering that took 10 minutes longer. The second train would be empty and the first train would be ridiculously overcrowded. And actually, we want people to be messy in their decision making because efficient markets aggregate differing preferences mm -hmm. okay yeah, yeah. and they can cater for them efficiently now so the very assumption that people have identical preferences is something you wanted we're probably almost educating the public to behave like homo transporticus so that websites for example will hide trains that are 25 minutes slower through mm. a slightly slower route Okay, In, which means that everybody ends up traveling on train A and nobody ends up traveling on route B, which makes the experience worse for the network and for all the individuals. And so actually encouraging psychological messiness in transport preference is probably a good thing for the healthy use of the network. Yeah. Hmm. So so that that leads me to wonder. Um, and, and I'm wondering if, if Pete could address this. Who did you write the book for? Is it are you are you intending to sort of point the finger at the policymakers to the to the the transport uh, you know paparat uh, you know uh, whoever you know the mafia that runs all this stuff you know behind the scenes uh, or uh, Pete, Pete has to be more. I would say yes, Pete is an employee of the Department for <laughs> Pete, Transport. Pete is now say, in that mafia. Uh, exactly. He? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's in the Corleone family of transport planning. <laughs> <laughs> For listeners as background, yes, well, Rory and I worked together for some eight years or so in, yeah. in Ogilvy's behavioural science team. And, and last year I moved to the UK UK government's uh, Department for Transport, um, so a, a civil service position. So the book's written in a personal capacity. I, and, well, it was maybe against the advice of publishers, I don't know, uh, around the world, but I don't think we had a particular reader in mind. It just felt like this was a book that needed to be written and it was the mm. right time to write it. I mean, certainly it's accessible to the general reader. There's nothing there that requires you to, and when, when there are complex com, uh, concepts introduced, they're explained and, and, and very useful in many cases uh, for people to know the whole intermodality thing and so on. So it, it, it's accessible to the general reader, as any book I think should be, you know, as far as is possible. I like to think it appeals to a frustrated but optimistic traveler. <laughs> So 90 plus percent of everybody in the world, right? There you go. Uh, you know. And everybody that works in transport is also a tra it also does travel themselves. And a big part of the book is to point the finger and say, I don't think we're using our own even lay people, person insight, let alone the good scientific insights as to how people travel when, when we make transport happen. So one of the things that you write in the book, and I think this is really interesting, is that you write... Um, that we need better tools to understand what people who travel value and to expand the ways in which we deliver to meet 
new societal specifications for cleaner, fairer, and more inclusive transport. So can you guys unpack that a little bit? Help us understand where you're going with that, because that's a pretty loaded statement there. And I think there's a lot that you can really expand upon. So I don't know. Pete? I think we're really optimistic that to help transport as an industry and a sector, help make the case for how the brilliant the brilliance of the thing that it is selling and the proposition that it's making, that it's put itself a bit into a corner when it talks about just reducing travel times and just reducing a small number of um, inconveniences. And actually connecting places has way bigger cultural societal benefits of second order effects that we should really help celebrate and understand, let alone the fact that journey time can be useful time. Oh, I'm sorry. I want to just dig in. You said second order impacts. Help our listeners understand what you mean by those second order impacts. So those would be the wider aspects of uh, the case for improving a bit of transport. So why would you add a bus route there or why would you add a cycle lane there? And it's not just to get people from A to B quicker. Um, It's that research shows when people travel by bicycle into city centers, they spend more money. Um, Mm. um, It shows that areas with with, with bicycle lanes have uh, safer for more road users. Um, but we could go on on and on like this, and I think the big the big glamorous ones are more connecting big cities and and big parts of the country where um, it's not just about getting there quicker. It's it's all the things that that then enables from um, uh, from from work, from life, from culture. What do you think, Rory? Yeah, no, and I think I think it's also the understanding that we tend when we look at top down solutions, we tend to look at them from the perspective of aggregated averages. Mm. And aggregated averages are a very bad way to understand individual behavior because everybody behaves within a context. And one of our arguments in the book, which I'm particularly obsessed with, is, is the idea that most transport models would treat saving 100 people 10 minutes as the same as effectively saving 10 people 100 minutes because it's aggregated time saving, average yeah. time savings. Yeah. Now, I slightly argue against, or no, no, this is not to say I think it's necessarily a bad idea, but I think we have to be slightly sceptical about some forms of high-speed rail, because if the typical person only undertakes that journey, this is why Concord, I think, ultimately fails. Mm -hmm. If the typical person undertakes that journey very infrequently, it isn't really life-changing, whereas reducing a commute by 30 minutes is a complete game-changer. Okay, because it's the same people experiencing the saving in some cases, at least pre-pandemic, 400 times a year. Okay, Mm -hmm. that means someone can live somewhere where they couldn't live before or work somewhere where they couldn't work before. Whereas if you're treating it with Concord or, say, London to Manchester, which the typical person will undertake, you know, five, six times a year, maybe 10. Okay, reducing that journey time by an hour is, you know, it will arguably it's it's actually a disutility. Because an infrequent two-hour train journey is something most business people look forward to. Because you actually have two hours without disruption where people bring you a cup of tea and you can get on with some work with a large table while looking out on some moving countryside. Most business people don't regard the time on the train as a disutility. Now, on the other hand, the time spent waiting at the station, which isn't factored into the model, where they put up on the departure board preparing train and you have to stand around on the forecourt like an idiot for 25 minutes, that bit really is a disutility. Yeah. And yet, you know, there's far more attention paid towards reducing the journey time on the train, which is arguably economically productive, than by 
preventing people from being made to wait around like idiots standing at a departure board. And that seems to be the classic case of reducing a problem to its engineering parts. And in doing so, in making the solution or the problem mathematically tractable, the first thing you cut out of consideration is human psychology, because it's simply too messy. And, you know, after a time, you know, patently, if you make something 10 times faster, you know, there there are going to be beneficial effects, okay? But after a time, you end up optimizing things which are very poorly aligned with what passengers care about. And as a result, the predictive value of your models and your e- the economic accuracy of your models may actually go very, very badly awry. Yeah, I'd just like to pick up on, build on Rory's point and cut in the statement you read, really important point that so far we've talked more about smart thinking and complexity, I would say. Mm. What that first point of that statement was, let's understand the needs and, and how the people being transported work. And that's where it's deeply psychological. So we need yeah. to understand the real human nature, which means both the superpowers and the super shortcomings of the people being moved. Yeah. Um, that can mean that they... Um, that can mean anything from the fact that we don't navigate very well and that we don't always know where our space in where where we are in space and we don't follow signs the way that you might expect to <laughs> and that we struggle to use touch screens to pick tickets that we don't understand um, and that we um, experience time even differently so that um, the return journey on average feels 22% shorter than the outward journey. So when something's easy to do, it feels shorter. So the more that we can unpick and use psychology to understand the intricacies of the people being transported, and, and as we say, humans are not cargo. So it's not merely even a point of just thinking of the the efficient point from individual bits of cargo, but we need to treat us in a really human way. I mean, what one of the unfairest things with behavioural science is we tend to refer to biases as though they are end-user distortions mm. in decision-making, when far more commonly it's institutional decision-making that manifests biases. So, you know, I would argue, as Pete probably would, that a, a, you know, a large part of transport planning has a speed bias mm. in that, you know, generally, once you achieve a certain sort of quality of journey... And and once you also reduce the variance of the journey reasonably so that you know your train isn't going to be hideously late, okay, then actually what you're then trying to do is probably improve the wrong things. Mm. You know, the the area in which to invest may not be a faster train uh, or even a more frequent service. It may be something to do on the platform while you're waiting for the train. For instance. Yeah. Well, yeah. in in my lifetime, and I think I'm the the ranking member of this group here, age wise. Yeah. But in my lifetime, the experience in waiting for a bus, waiting for a train, waiting for a, an airplane hasn't changed a bit. That there has been virtually no investment no. in really enhancing the experience of me as a human being in the in that 25 minutes. I mean, at an airplane, it's an hour and a half. Uh, I have to be at the airport in in advance of a plane to sit around. And the experience really isn't any better than it was, you know, 50 years ago. No, I suppose airport retail's got a bit more exciting, hasn't it? Um, well, and you get but, you have, but you have a, a little hand device that we now are all glued yeah. to. So that that is, you know, an, another piece of this. But Well, that's yeah. an important, that's a highly important thing in a sense, because, you know, I mean, actually, quite a lot of the growth, we, Pete and I surmise that quite a lot of the growth in train traffic we saw in the UK 
leading up to about 2014, would you say, Pete, about before it tailed off. Our contention was a significant part of that was technologically driven, by which we don't mean train technology. We mean, one, the fact that you could work on a train made it relatively more appealing than a car. Because any business person would think, well, okay, if I do drive there, that's an hour and a half where all I can do is make phone calls. Okay, my email's going to be piling up, whereas on the train, I'm going to be reducing it. Secondly, I suppose there was so there was in entertainment on the journey home that you could watch a film, which is dangerous to do in a car. <laughs> and then other, other related things are you could find train information much more easily because the mm. internet existed. And finally, of course, it made possible things like yield management pricing, which did a much better job of, of load balancing and made it possible to offer tickets at a significantly discounted rate on, you know, uh, off-peak off services. So those were all really products of internet or Wi-Fi enabled technologies, not specifically rail technologies. Mm, yeah, very much so. I, I, I want to go back to the that statement I talked about again because there's one piece in there that I don't think we've we've covered, which is you, it's like new societal specifications for cleaner, fair, and more inclusive transport. So we've talked a lot about the the journey here, but there's also the societal impacts that you guys talk about in this book. And so I don't know, Pete, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd love to. And I think the the genesis of the book, and it comes in the preface, really, is that we we started from a point of um, frustration with not enough ticket machines and frustrations with, with the journey experience, I'd say. And it's a good place to start. But as the journey of writing the book emerged, I think the biggest shift has been that an individual's travel behavior matters, not just for that individual now. It has really big societal consequences um, at a local level with, um, with, uh, with in the environment uh, and then clearly at a global level in terms of climate change. So yeah. suddenly there is, we have shifted the needle and there's really no going back from this, that what used to be a completely sort of considered a real free choice uh, does have, does, does have um, implications. So we now look at ways in which there would be a cause to look at how people will travel differently in the future to enable that to be possible with very low friction and to find ways in which we can help people gain new travel skills and new abilities. And the point about inclusivity is is one in a way we have touched upon before that um, we shouldn't assume everyone is um, is carrying all the same um, superpowers under in their uh, <laughs> under their shoulder. Uh, so design for design for all really, yeah. and that's that helps a lot of people. Well, and, and that leads into a question that I think is is pertinent to me, maybe Tim as well. We both live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Minneapolis has done a concerted effort to push people into alternative modes of transportation, getting them out of the car, at least within the city. And in particular, they have been building bike lanes and a variety of those. And and, and I think there's a there's been some pushback again from the the people perspective of this minneapolis is a northern u.s city uh, we live in in winter you know four or five months out of the year um now global warming we might get that down to three or four months out of the year but but you know the, the fact of the matter is there's snow out right now there you know it's it, it it's a cold climate and and I think that the the designers that we have had our city kind of council who has been really pushing this are, are trying to do something with the best intention. But I think to what you guys are talking about, 
taking in the the human system here and even some of the fairness pieces like there are lots of like my my elderly you know in-laws are not going to be riding a bike you know to get to you know someplace that's five miles away and so i'm just again wondering again you guys talked about homo transporticus versus you know homo sapiens and and how do cities need to be thinking about this because there is a real need to move people into some more you know greener type uh, you know, transportation modes, but there's also that human factor. And I think the other piece of this, and I'm sorry, I'm putting multiple questions in here is that with the the bike lanes, they're taking away parking. And for businesses, some of those businesses are really hurting because of that. So where, where do you draw the line and where do you get that balance? How, how answer all those questions for us here (laughs) now? (laughs) Uh, Well, I suppose the U.S. presents some very interesting challenges because in some parts of the U.S., it's not a country very well suited to rail, intercity rail. Yeah. Okay. Because the distances involved are completely different. I mean, an order of magnitude different from most European uh, countries, certainly the U.K. There are nonetheless places in the U.S. I would argue that Los Angeles and San Francisco, Los Angeles and the Bay Area. You could also argue, I think, San Antonio and Austin would mm-hmm. probably benefit from having a reasonably high-speed rail uh, line linking the two, uh, just from sort of scale and network effects. Now, you, there are interesting cases where a large part of behaviour is just driven by social norms, habit, and sometimes by social factors. So, you know, I, I don't think the wealthier 30% of Los Angelinos would ever take a bus, for example. Is that probably a fair assumption? So that richer people in the U.S. more or less never take, never use buses. That's yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Now, that's, that's probably good. Yep. Yeah. Now, if you could, if you could change that, I think I don't think I think Pete and I are both essentially libertarians, but we believe believe there's the potential. I think to allow people within the constraints of of reasonable freedom of choice to make slightly better informed decisions that are less driven by habit. So I'll give you a very simple example. I mean, one problem you'll have if you uh, if you instigate that high speed rail network between San Antonio and Austin is that in the United States there's no real social norm around taking trains at all. So people who've driven that journey in the past will continue to to drive the journey. Now, what Pete and I might suggest is that if you do instigate that rail network, you should give everybody free travel on that network on their birthday. Okay, mm. they'll probably take a friend. If they've made the journey twice or three times, okay, from then on, the decision as to do I drive or do I take the train is what you might call an informed decision. It's based on experience of both modes. And then from then on, those people will probably choose fairly intelligently using information which, after all, is only known to them. How much luggage do I have? Is it raining? All those other considerations which affect uh, journey mode choice. But at least they're making a decision based on experience, not on habit. And we, you know, we have a car bias in part simply because, as Pete, Pete and I point out, the car is outside your house waiting for you, whereas you have to wait for a bus. Now, very strangely, um, I, I have a, a little apartment in a seaside town in, in uh, Kent uh, on, on the coast where you can't park outside the house. You have to park in a, in, in a car park about 150 yards away. You can drop things off when you arrive by putting onto the sidewalk in front of your house, but then you have to move your car to a place 200 yards away. What fascinated me was the extent to which I walked there rather than drove. Mm. Because the initial 100 yards of my journey were, by definition, on foot, and I continued on foot. 
Mm. Now, someone who lived next to a railway station who had a car that was four miles away would make a disproportionate number of journeys by train. Okay, mm. right? Yeah. yeah. And so just understanding biasing factors, and sometimes, sometimes you try and overcome them, sometimes you simply have to acknowledge them. Understanding the biasing factor that, of course, a car is a big upfront expense with relatively low marginal cost of use. So do we need, for example, an Amazon Prime for the train where, mm. you know, if, you, if you're going, if you're, you know, interested in making a train journey 10 or 15 times a year, you might pay $100 a year and then get half price transit. OK, somewhere halfway between a season ticket, which is a ludicrous overcommitment to train travel and nothing at all, which ludicrously biases you to using the car, is just an area for good mental exploration because the two extremes are silly. Right. And they're both silly in a sense. And so allowing people to make informed decisions based on wider contextual factors is a good start, because if we design for that kind of world, I mean, there are other really interesting cases in the US, you know, as a big country. I mean, I think you can put roundabouts are actually, I'm going to scandalize you now, they're actually a really good thing. Okay. Yeah. But of course, the problem in, in, in France and the, U, U, and the UK, which are the two countries I think were the most roundabouts in the world, we introduced a lot of them more or less simultaneously. Lots of people, relatively small countries, became familiar with them quickly. Everybody now is pretty good at using roundabouts in a way that's much more efficient than a four-way stop. I mean, mm -hmm. I also argue that actually roundabouts are much more libertarian than um, traffic lights. Traffic lights are state intervention. They're dirigiste. <laughs> really, traffic lights are French and roundabouts are technically American. But, but for some reason, we've got it the wrong way around. Okay. But actually, people use contextual intelligence and social intelligence to navigate roundabouts with an extraordinary degree of efficiency. But it takes acclimatization. And so the problem in the US is you, uh, there's one guy, there's a mayor in Indiana somewhere, a town in Indiana, who's just installed like 50 of them. And, yeah. uh, and he got a huge amount of flack. About a year and a half later, everybody loves him for it. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, apart from anything else, the other thing with roundabouts is the traffic tends to keep moving, which is a lot less stressful than being forced to be stationary. So, you know, there are these interesting questions where, you know, one thing we've got to watch is that it's very easy to invest in transport infrastructure for the project to be declared a white elephant after six months because nobody's using it. That might be the case in the New Mexico. I think they've got a Santa Fe, Albuquerque kind of rapid rail roadrunner thing. OK, yeah. um, it probably takes five or six years for people to get their heads around a new mode of transport like that. So, yeah. so actually decrying it on the basis of low ridership in year two is probably a bit unfair. Mm. The, the, you know, the, the two big forces actually in human behavior are habit and social copying. And so something which nobody's ever done before and which none of your friends does, OK, is naturally going to take off rather slowly at first. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And to, to your question, Kurt, about bike lanes in Minneapolis, yes. Yes. Yeah two levels i mean one it may be a place-based solution would be uh, is this appropriate for the uh, physical environment that we're in and i couldn't comment exactly but bicycle usage is quite high in scandinavia in copenhagen and places yeah. that do also have quite bitter winters but once a culture maybe may have developed and secondly that i mean rory touched on this here that there's some transition costs and really i think at the end of the book we talk more about transport as an evolutionary system and the fact mm. that we coexist and co-evolve really with our transport technologies in the first instance like a like a fish moving out of water is very difficult with the one bike lane that runs 
of one section it's not really useful to anyone but you could wind the clock back and go into step into london say roughly 10 years ago when i moved here and you would decry the um five or six uh, blue painted bike lanes that were just on the main arterial roads and seemed to just clutter up uh, didn't seem to be good for either cyclists or for um uh, or for road users uh, but now you wind forwards and there's been more installed, there's more side lanes, there's more quiet streets, there's more quiet lanes, more people have adapted to it, um, and you do have more bike priority. Mm. I think, I think yeah, I, I, I'm going to be a bit more anti. I think you could level demographic accusations, just as you said, there's no way your parents are going to cycle in Minneapolis, certainly yeah. not in the winter. I think you could level demographic attacks, even on London's bike lanes. It is a very particular demography that uses them very heavily. But Pete's point still stands, which is when they reach a certain sort of network scale. I mean, this has been brilliantly demonstrated, and we ought to include Zoom as a mode of transportation, if we're looking Uh at this holistically, okay? Which is that nothing changed technologically about Zoom between 2018, really, and 2020. What changed was critical mass in the use. And, you know, the problem with Zoom use in 2019 was really that it was simply a problem of normalization. Mm. That, you know, as a business person, flying to, you know, Indianapolis for the day was the normal thing to do. And holding Mm -hmm. a Zoom meeting was seen as slightly weird. And, you know, we instinctively tend to follow social norms, particularly in a business setting, actually, because they're they're low blame risk. If you mm. do the normal thing, you know, you know, if the flight gets cancelled, everybody blames American Airlines. Actually, who would have been? In, do you still have NWA out of Minneapolis Airport? No, no it's now uh, Delta. It's, it's, all Delta. it's all Delta. It's all Delta. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah I, I, um, so MSP, you know, uh, you'd all blame Delta if your flight was cancelled. Yes, but weirdly, if your video conference went wrong, everybody would blame you for not flying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so doing the abnormal thing in a business setting is is very very high risk and so you know this is why in some ways business technology often lags consumer technology in fact mm. because people are frightened of doing anything new because the question is not just what is it but what does it mean what does it signify and you know there, there are whole there are the whole questions of significance of taking a bus in the united states okay that you know is, is actually a statement in many respects now, I, I, but I will say that we have to be a bit alert with the bicycle thing because uh, in a place like Minneapolis, which I know is absolutely freezing for several, you know, several months of the year, rather like Toronto, say, uh, you know, you can't really expect people to uh, in those months of the year. On the other hand, I mean, there must be parts of the year where it's absolutely idyllic. It is, and it, and, it, and it's absolutely wonderful. And there, there are to that yeah. point. I think there is that, and what I'm hearing actually is that there's the we a one we need to build up the the infrastructure enough so that it becomes uh ubiquitous and so that everybody can start using it so you get that mass ab- ability for the people who want to use it and do it um and then wait a little bit to see ex- exactly the uh, adoptance rate as we're moving forward with this as well and i think there's there's a whole bunch of other things we'd love to talk to you about but i know i know we're running at time and i know tim definitely wants to talk about music so i am going to i'm <laughs> going to turn it over to him 
uh, with, with just a chagrin because man, I could talk to you guys a, a whole, yeah. you know, another hour on just like we, I was on a, on a committee to, that we were doing rapid bus lanes and, and transit within Minneapolis. And they decided to go with the same old bus. And I was saying, no, you need to set a whole different style of bus because Rory to your part sets it apart. It is no longer your city well, bus. It's I mean, a, there's a very interesting finding, which is that when you replace a bus route with a tram route, which is in some ways a stupid thing to do because all trams are as buses you but buses that can't steer <laughs> weirdly ridership even for the same price and the same frequency and the same speed ridership goes up immensely yeah now i'm not quite sure why that is but a tram means something different to a bus and it may be also i've also surmised that maybe some people are sort of very mildly travel sick and they don't experience that on rails, whereas they do when being driven yeah. on a bus. I don't know. But there is this really interesting question that there's a very high status bus route, isn't there, out of New York, which serves kind of the Hamptons. But they don't call it a bus. They call it a jitney. Yes. Have you noticed yeah. that? That's so it's it. cunningly rebranded. So you're not actually, you don't actually have to say, I took the bus to the Hamptons. Yes. You say, I got the, was it the Long Island jitney, I think it's called. <laughs> Which is just exactly. a very, very clever, subtle distinction, I think. Well, in in Boston, if you if you take the uh, if you take a bus from Boston Logan Airport to the to the ferry port for Martha's Vineyard, which is kind of a hobnobby place, yeah, they call it the Peter Pan. <laughs> it's not. It's that you know. It's not. It is a bus. It is a bus that yeah. is operated by a company that calls it Peter Pan. But they say, well, oh, just take the Peter Pan from Logan down to Woods Hole, not take the bus. So, yeah, there is this camouflage that that that's, that certainly happens. I think there's probably a market for um, a kind of luxury Greyhound service. I've always wondered. Um, I mean, George Monbiot, who's a big environmental campaigner in the UK, has always argued that there's a gap in the market for luxury point-to-point mm. coach travel, which I think is interesting. There are also really interesting questions psychologically, by the way, about actually the importance of things like uh, circular rail routes, mm. uh, just as actually ring roads or uh, orbitals are very, very important economically. I think we've made the we've made the whole rail network far too centripetal. Okay. It's far too hub and spoke. Um, and I think that business of having complementary circular railroads, just as we have orbital motorways, I think is very important. I think the other one that's interesting is penetrating rail lines, uh, which go, in, in other words, rather than ending in a terminus in a city, they go all the way through. Mm. And, and the reasons for those are actually quite often psychological, which is that um, but it, it's sort of psychological and social. If you and your wife want to move out of London or you and your husband want to move out of London, okay, uh, then the likelihood is that one of you will end up with a much better commute than the other. But if you have a penetrating rail line, there's a fair chance that both of you can board the same train and one of you stays on for another 10 minutes longer. Mm. So, you know, the penetrating rail lines have a real significance, I think, as do orbital rail lines, which we've tended to overlook. Because not we, I mean, it's a bit of a. If you think about it, civil servants, government planners, town planners, they're all based right in the middle of the city, and when they go anywhere, they go right to the centre of some other city. Okay, actually, real world human journeys aren't like that at all. <laughs> no. You know, they really aren't. I mean, there are people. I, I live just outside London, and there are people. Literally, there are people in Bromley, which is part of London. Okay, who don't go up west, as you might call it, i.e., going into the centre from one year to the next. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
And it's not it's not that unusual. You've got Bromley has, you know, as Dr. Johnson never said, when a man is tired of Bromley, he is tired of life. For there is no yeah, but nonetheless, you know, there's enough for you know, for normal people who aren't in the market for buying, you know, obscure vinyl or something. There's, you know, pretty much enough in both in Bromley and on the internet to cater for it. And if you want to go somewhere, it's probably to an adjacent borough, not always into the goddamn middle. You know, I've often wondered if you built a rail equivalent of the M25 around London. I mean, the London Overground was a fantastic case of kind of creating an orbital railway through repurposing sort of underused uh, rail lines. And it's wow. been a spectacular success. Wow. I, I, we're going to lose Pete here in just a moment. Oh, and I sorry, have I to, yeah. okay. I have to ask him music. about about listening to music when he, especially when you ride. Now, uh, we, we before we started recording, you you did mention that on your your Lands End to Hyde Park, eleven plus hours, you did not listen to any. You did not have anything in your ears. You were concentrating. Is that is that the norm though? In training rides, along with many other cyclists, I might have uh, one headphone in, and music has a really big effect on um, your, uh, yeah, clearly on your mood and how uplifted you can be and your determination in in training. Um, yeah, there's really good sports psychology studies that that show this, not just music before competition, but but um, but in training for the event itself. I required myself some discipline where I made the analogy. I was felt more like a an astronaut trying to guide the spaceship safely back home, <laughs> wow. which is say quite grand. But I didn't feel like an astronaut would listen to music on their re-entry into space. And if you see a picture of me, I am wearing quite a space spaceman type helmet, and there's quite considerable amount to concentrate on. Uh, when you have a big tailwind blowing behind you on quite a big road, um, always looking out for ways in which you could save speed, save energy here or there. So uh, try to keep my wits about me. Yeah, I always feel like I, I always come uh, a cropper once I, uh, when I'm feeling the best. So I never quite let my mood go too euphoric, if you see what I mean. <laughs> uh, what about on a commute, Pete? Would you would you listen to music just getting from point A to point B? Yeah, yeah, typically. Although I would say I listen to music more for on on exercise than I would yeah. typically listen to podcasts, audiobooks, and radio um, as sort of content to listen into. Yeah. Yeah. Plays yeah. a bigger part in my life. Yeah, Rory, are, are you? Would, would, if you now you've got this fancy new electric vehicle, when you get inside, is music coming on right away? Weirdly, I mean, it's got Android Auto, and so I'm quite a heavy user of uh, podcasts and uh, Audible as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So depending on duration of journey, uh, if it's a shorter journey, it's either music, radio, or nothing. On a longer journey, I'll tend to. By the way, driving electric vehicles. I don't know if either of you's made the switch yet. I have. Yep. Yeah. What, what, so it's very strange, isn't it? Because it completely changes the way you drive. Yeah. Um, you, now, you'd think having access to all this torque and acceleration, you'd drive like a bit of a lunatic. But in fact, you almost chauffeur yourself. And then with other technologies like adaptive <laughs> cruise control, you kind of go into a zone. I don't know if you've got the adaptive cruise control, which yep. is effectively it's self-driving because you outsource your driving to another car. And you just go, okay, that guy looks fairly sane. I'll basically follow him. And then you just, <laughs> uh, and then if he decelerates, you decelerate. And if he accelerates, you accelerate within reason. You've obviously set a maximum on your cruise control. 
And it's a very, very escapist pastime. It's very strange. No. I, mean, I, I mean, I drive in this way, which is, I always describe it as, it's like converting to Quakerism as a motorist. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the strange things is if somebody breaks in front of you, in a petrol vehicle, you're angry because they've robbed you of your hard-earned kinetic energy. But with regenerative braking, and particularly one-pedal driving, you just go, oh, the traffic's slowing down a bit. Yeah. And because you feel you just take your foot off the accelerator, the car slows down, some of the kinetic energy goes back into your battery, you feel completely zen about this. Whereas in a, in a gasoline vehicle, you'd be irritated. And there's some other strange factors. I think an electric vehicle is completely comfortable driving at any speed. Yeah. Whereas a gasoline vehicle, obviously, in any given gear, there are speeds at which it's just more comfortable. And so this readiness to adapt to... Um, external conditions is strangely odd but actually quite pleasant yeah. would you would you would you back me on that that it, uh, it's not just me being weird no it's not there there's a there's a different way and the, the regenerative braking is one thing that it took me a while to get used to and yeah. then once you do it's it, then i go into the gas powered vehicle we have and i get I, I get angry because i have to put my foot on the brake in yeah. order to stop and i'm going I just want to start slowing down as soon as I, I take my foot off of the accelerator and all of those other factors that come into place. And we have, I have a Tesla and so I have a, a the semi-automatic um, driving. And so it yes. actually steers for me around. It won't shift lanes. I don't have the full, full board one, but on long trips, it's just, it's the, it's the most wonderful thing in the world because. It's, it's bizarre, isn't it? You just enter a yeah. zone and it's more yeah. or less equivalent to being driven. I mean, obviously yeah. it literally is in some cases. Do you still have this wonderful thing called the Minnesota zipper merge? In or zip merge, in because I've read about it and it's always written about as though it's peculiar to Minnesota, which is that when two lanes go down of traffic go down to one because of roadworks, you take you merge late but then take it in turns. I don't think it is as much as it probably has been talked about because ah. there are many people who who don't do that. But yes, that 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 would be the ideal. It's a very interesting thing because the Dutch do it and the Germans don't. And it's one of those strange behaviours which, if you can inculcate it as a norm, it has a huge benefit to traffic movement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, generally. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I know that we need to uh, we need to uh, say our thank yous to both of you for your time and your insights, Pete. It's always it's great to meet you, Rory. It's always wonderful to to see you both, and thank you for being our guests on Behavioral Groups today. It's been a pleasure, it's a huge pleasure. Thank you ever so much. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our conversation with Rory and Pete, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our transported brains. And wouldn't it be great if our brains could transport, like, time? Time? Well, they do. Not just I mean, it's like, you know, I'm now transported from the past where we were just talking about this, and now I'm in the future. See, I'm transported <laughs> from there. And it's still now. But it is now, isn't it? Oh, it's a conundrum. Is it the is it the future? Is it the past? Is it? I don't know. Anyway, this is interesting though. There's just the transport piece. Wouldn't it be cool if you could just like transport your entire like a a teleporter on Star Trek, and all of a sudden yeah. you're just transported over over to England, so we could be at a pub in England having this conversation with Rory and Pete. Yes, as opposed to you know having to do it over Squadcast or Zoom or whatever it is that we're doing. So. 
Well, there's a lot of science fiction stuff that's been written about by creative writers that has come true. So who's to say that we're, it's just a matter of time before we get to that point. Ooh, we, we could go, we could go on a long journey about this. Like, all right, do they take every atom of our body, send it across the wires and then reconnect it together? Or is this more like a, like, all right, they just make a copy of you over in the new place. And so it's not really you, but it's an exact copy replica of you. And then is it really you? And if I killed the old person, am I a murderer? Because now you're a new person <laughs> over here. And then what if there's a glitch and there's a little tiny glitch and you have three atoms that get displaced and are in a different spot. And I, that's all you know, crazy. I can imagine, but I, I don't know anything about I can't even tell you how a toilet works. So <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be very good at There's a thing uh, called gravity, Tim. That's all. <laughs> is, that, is that it? Is that the secret to the toilet? Most, uh, most toilets yeah. are just now. Oh, anyway. All right. So travel. Let's, not, let's uh, not talk about toilet toilets. Let's talk about travel. Here we travel go. Travel and transport. And uh, it it's, I mean, this is an appealing topic uh, for, for me because it impacts all of us, right? We're not hermits. We've, we have generations of traveling, you know, uh, back to the early, early humans, you know, got up and moved from their homes. And so they, they've been transporting, we've been transporting ourselves for a long time. And I really like that, uh, that they kind of talked about three primary theories, like this complexity theory, uh, this idea that it's emphasizing the interactions that accompany feedback loops that constantly change systems. Mm -hmm. Man, this is uh, this is for big thinkers. You know, you've got to have a good brain to put this stuff together. And I'm glad that there are people who who have worked through the issues of, for instance, moving trains in opposite directions on the same track yeah. and to figure this stuff out. You've got to be you got to be pretty damn smart to to work through this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Network theory that they talked about too. This idea of hey, how do you have symmetric or asymmetric relations between these different objects and different pieces. Again, that's part of that, right. how, how things move and, and where things are. But then most importantly, or at least from my perspective, is this idea of behavioral science and transport. You go, how, how yeah. does behavioral science impact transport? It's, it's all physics, right? It's like, you know, you have this engine, you have these roads, it's engineering and physics. And, but no, it's not because the way that we perceive transportation the way that we consume transportation is vastly influenced by how our expectations about that, our, our mode of mindset that we are in, the, the differences in how we perceive time, how we perceive motion, how we perceive all of these different things which come into the realm of Behavioral science. Behavioral science, yeah. Well, it, it and part of that is our own expectations, and part of it is how things are framed to us. I think back to our, our conversation with uh, Sam Tatum uh, about, let's say, that that we get on a, a flight here in Minneapolis and we travel to London, and that's about seven hours in the air. But, of course, there's also a couple of hours leading up to that, you know, uh, getting through security and checking bags, that sort of thing. And rather than getting to the the baggage claim at Heathrow and say oh my god we have to wait another 20 minutes say we've already been on this journey for 9 hours we've we've successfully mastered 9 hours there's only 20 minutes left yeah R rather than framing it as oh my 
my God, we got 20 more minutes to wait for the for the bags to come in. Yeah. Uh, framing is an important part of it. Well, I mean, th- this is an important piece. And it's part of what I think Rory was talking about, too, in some of this conversation. It's like, all right, so what are the expectations that we have going in? And what do we need? Then, then how do those expectations influence our perception of what is happening, right? And so framing is part of that. The other aspect is, you know, we can make technological advances in transportation. So, which has been where that focus has been. All right, I have a commute from Minneapolis to Chicago. It takes it takes six hours, right? Can I get that down to five hours and 45 minutes? Okay, great. But in reality, is it better to maybe make that that six-hour commute less painful, cognitively less painful, less boring, right. less cognitively stressful, and make it entertaining. Like if this was a six-hour, you know, joy-filled, fun adventure going to Disney World, I would be loving it. I would want totally longer different. time to to do this. And so this is the right. part about trains and and you know even airlines and how do you build these different aspects in to ensure that you're having a better experience with the transport than just having it transport as a means to get from point A to point B. Right. I, I, don't, I don't think we talked about it in this particular discussion, but Rory once, uh, we were talking to Rory one time about the idea of looking at your GPS and you're going from your home to the airport and you've got options. If you get on the motorway, it's, uh, it's an hour and 10 minutes. And, and if you take the train, it's an hour and 50 minutes, for instance. And you think, well, obviously the motorway is better. But what if there's a crash on the, on the freeway and that could completely screw you up? So maybe, maybe it, uh, if a GPS could frame it to say, well, there's a 95% chance that you'll reach the airport in an hour and 50 minutes if you use the train. But there's only a 60% chance of you reaching the, the airport if you take you know, in an hour and 10 minutes, if you take the the motorway and those kinds of differences could help inform us to make better decisions that might be more calming and more uh, comforting to us uh, in, in, in the way that we do this stuff. Well, and there's the, the, that's the predictability, right? This idea of how predictable that, that transportation is. And we talked about that. That was like, do I take the interstate where I know there's often, you know, backups and different things that happen for weird reasons? Or do I take the back roads that, yeah, they take 20 minutes longer to get there, but I'm damn pretty sure that I, and even if there is something on one of those back roads, I can take a, a slight detour and I will still get there within a five minute parameter of what I want. And so, or the other piece that he talked about is, all right, that might be the fastest way, but is it the most enjoyable way? Is it the best trip? Right. Is it the right. most scenic way to get there? Is it the way that I'm going to experience the countryside in a, in a manner as opposed to seeing billboards flashing past me going at 70 miles per hour? Or am I going to actually get to see, hey, this is part of the countryside. This is the woods, the, you know, the, the country houses, the whatever it would be. And that has a value. And yet we don't seem to put a premium on that. We tend to just think about transport as this part of getting from A to B as quickly as possible with as least hassles as possible. Yeah. I also wanted to talk about uh, the first order and second order effects uh, that they mentioned. And the first order effects about, you know, getting people to work, you know, 
to eat, you know, hospitals, you know, all, all the commuting, all those kinds of things that we have to do. Um, there's this, these very clear and direct impacts. But the second order effects, when we get into the social side, just as you're teeing this up, of what would it be like to think about uh, transportation between two two points in terms of the physical beauty of the place and how that might positively impact us? There's there's some discussion right here in our own city of of taking um, taking the the interstate the the major motorway between Minneapolis and St. Paul and actually just filling in a section of it like like not just covering it over, but one of the proposals is fill it in, route all the traffic through the city streets, which would have a, an economic boon to restaurants and, and uh, you know, uh, so especially social places. And those neighborhoods would probably thrive in part because of it, but there could also be downsides. And it's, it's a fascinating thing to think about the implications of making these changes, um, at least more, in, and, and the intentionality about it is, is encouraging to me, that there's some discussion beyond just the first order effects of how fast can we get someone from point A to point B. It is interesting, and I think this is a key piece, and it's one of the aspects, at least in, in our local government, as you're talking about 94, but there's also been a whole number of different decisions made in Minneapolis and in St. Paul, more, more so Minneapolis, in just like the bike lanes and how they're using and how they're yeah. anticipating. They are actively trying to dissuade car use, and there's yeah. second order effects of that. And there are positive pieces of that, but there are also negative pieces, negative first order effects for some of the businesses and various different pieces that come around, basic force first order effects for the ability for people to go shopping and to do different aspects of their lives easily. Um, but there are also different secondary effects on what that means from a social livability within the neighborhoods from what that means in kind of how we uh, navigate the the world and how much time we need to take in order to get from point right. A to point B and how we then think about those aspects and all of that. And so it, it's, yeah. it's not just like it was, I think, and this is the part that I think Pete and, and Rory really make, is that it's not just an engineering problem, that this is a larger... Yeah more interconnected issue that plays into a number of different factors. And I think it's really an interesting one that doesn't have easy answers and one that we need to be thinking about. And I do love the idea, though, uh, of and in America, we, we don't have the train use that, that they do in Europe. And, and to think about how efficient trains can be and the idea of, of riding on trains, um, particularly for more of your everyday kind of transport and different pieces. And yeah, there's a large uh, capital influx uh, in order to get that done. Yeah. But again, the second order components around that, the development that goes around those train routes, the you know economic activity that you have, because if you're doing a commute on a train, you can actually either you know, read and have some joyous time for yourself or you can have a conversation like we had with, you know, social stuff. Our, yes. our with element Nick Epley, of, yeah, Nick Epley yeah. talking about having positive, yeah. you know, social interactions with people around you, or you can actually get some work done. And so there's a lot of different factors that come into play, uh, you know, that go beyond just getting from point A to point B quickly and easily. So, yeah. And, 
uh, I, I like that that we got to talk about that with these guys who are very bright thinkers and and very thoughtful about it. I suppose um, I think that that was really important. Uh, I I uh, I just wanted to just quickly uh, solicit your opinions on uh, being an electric car owner. Rory is an electric car owner. I recently became an electric car owner, and uh, you but you've been at it for. Almost two years? No, over two years. So over two years. You know, pluses and minuses. Uh, it's, it's almost all pluses for me. I, yeah. I, I, I seriously, the we have a a, a Tesla Model Three. It is. I, I'm not a car guy, so I was never like into cars. And I've talked to everybody about this, right? But it is the a the most fun car ever to drive that I've yeah. ever owned. It had, I mean, the acceleration, even when you're going 50 miles, 60 miles an hour on the interstate and you press down the accelerator and you feel it immediate. It's no, there's no delay. There's nothing. Um, it's thrilling. That's fun. It, the, it, it hugs the curves. It's all the stuff. But it's also this really quiet experience that like you're driving and there's no noise. And there's yeah. this element of, of feeling like, you're helping the environment with everything that you're doing. And granted, I know that the energy still comes from somewhere and you need to, you know, take that into account, but man, it's super simple. I come home at, you know, and we plug it in every night and next day it's ready to go and never stopping at a gas station is really kind of cool. So it is kind of cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to all those experiences. We're just a week into it. Yeah. So we don't have that kind of uh, depth of experience, but it's pretty exciting. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the part that is there is they still don't have the, the kind of infrastructure around to recharge the cars easily everywhere. So, you know, when we drive up to the cabin, you know, I can only take one route up there because I have to stop halfway in order to charge up yeah and yeah. so there's only one route i can take and if i miss that or something happens then it comes into that predictability that we talked about earlier and something you know could go amiss and so there is that potential thing you know driving cross country you got to plan that out you got to build in extra time for those long trips too which again isn't always that bad because most of these places are the charging stations right now are aligned with shopping or food places. And so you need to eat, you need to, you know, you can take some time and, and get some other things done. And so it doesn't take that long and it's pretty, pretty effective. Well, and this gets to this, uh, some, there was a comment that uh, Rory made about adaptive preference formation, this idea that re liking what you have rather than wanting to have what you like, Yeah, you know, and, and I think that we have a tremendous opportunity transportation in particular to sort of re uh, reset our expectations about what travel ought to be and and form it in a way that might just slow us down a little bit you know I, we've been talking about okay the 500 mile trip from minneapolis to st louis rather than taking nine hours might take ten and a half hours mm -hmm. uh, with with an electric car and that's going to be okay because we're going to make that enjoyable. We're going to reset our frame and, and think about that as looking at the journey in a different way. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and hopefully groovers, that's something that you can do as well. Reframe, well, reframe. And, and I love that first off and to build off of that one thing that I, I can't, I believe it was Rory said this, but this idea of reframing what transportation is. And he said, 
Zoom is a mode of transportation. And this idea that, yes, we're reframing this. And so we talked at the beginning, like, wouldn't it be great if we could just transport our mind somewhere and do that whole <laughs> Star Trek thing? And what's really yeah. kind of crazy is when we think about this, I mean, it's not, we're not there physically, but the amount of, of communication and connectivity that we have with people anywhere in the world, around the globe, with the technology that we have today, it's an immediate connection that I visually get to see you, I get to see your facial expressions, I get to hear your tone, and it's free. It is literally, we're not paying. I, you know, I remember a time when um, Aaron, my wife, and I were just dating, and she was down in Mexico, and this is the time before any of this stuff, and we had to do phone calls to connect, right? And so she was down there and work. And, yeah. and I, we did this phone call and I swear we probably, you know, but we were on the phone for a couple hours oh and my probably gosh. a lot of it was not even that much talking, you know, you know, whatever it was, you know, this thing. This is when you're, you're, you're young and new in the, in the romance and it's exciting. My phone yeah. bill, my phone bill was like $700 for that one call. You, people don't understand that, that the international calls were, I don't know, $2 a minute or something like $3 a minute. And, and oh, yeah. we were on the phone for three hours and such. And then I think it was $700 for that phone bill and not that necessarily that one call. But, and I'm going, I could have got a flight down to Mexico yeah. <laughs> and spent the weekend with you as opposed to talking on the phone for that amount. But we've become so accustomed to this, that this is a, you know, technically we can zoom anybody across the globe for the cost of an internet connection um, yeah. and, a, and, and the phone or a computer. So anyway. Okay. A a anything else? Shall we wrap it up? I think we need to wrap that up. So thank you, Everett Groovers, um, and enjoy your transport to wherever you are going. And it's always cool for Tim and me to share these great conversations that we hope that you find them interesting and valuable to your life. Yeah, we also hope you pick up a copy of uh, Rory and Pete's book. I, I think that aside from just being really fun to read, it's got lots of really interesting concepts, uh, and um, it will be just as entertaining as the conversation with them, too. And and we're going to ask that if you like what you hear, please share a little bit of this happiness by giving us a rating on, on Apple or writing a short review it really does go a long way for us. It absolutely does. And so we hope that you take some consideration to how you're getting around. You know, some of the ways that the human-centered design could benefit from transportation in your own life. Maybe you could try out some of these new ideas this week even. Ride a bike to work. There you go. And as you do, we hope that you go out and find your groove. 